From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. And welcome to the Patrick Henningsen Show. Today, Wednesday, the 28th of February, 2024. That's a Valentine in once again for Patrick, who is somewhere in Eurasia. We've just about got the busiest ever Patrick Henningsen Show. I'll be joined later in this hour by Freddie Ponton to discuss Jen Stoltenberg, NATO chief, who seems determined to take uh, the West to war. Uh, later in the hour, I'll also be joined by Tagrid Al-Mawed of the Palestinian Refugee Project. And in the second hour, Chris Williamson, former Labour MP for Derby, who's been up in Rochdale campaigning for George Galloway, will be in the hot seat. And then we expect to hear from Patrick himself. So it's a very busy programme. But before all of them, we've got TNT's own James Freeman, a genuinely intrepid correspondent today who is outside the Welsh Parliament in Cardiff. Welcome to the programme, James. Hello, Basil. How, how are you? Nice and warm, and I've got a cup of tea here, which I drink <laughs> uh, when out of shot. But uh, tell me, why are you outside the Senedd Kimru, a.k.a. the Welsh Parliament, on a wet afternoon in February? I can think of lots of places yeah. I'd rather be. You're making me very jealous there, um, talking about a warm studio and a cup of tea. Um, it's been a pretty awful day, actually, in terms of weather. Um, you know, we've got absolutely soaked. Um, we're here today for the farmers' protest. Um, they The crowds have gone now, because I think because of the weather was so bad. But we had, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, we've got a drone up. I would estimate we probably had around five, six, seven thousand 7,000 farmers here earlier today. Wow. And they're all here to protest against the Welsh government, the Welsh Labour government's sustainable farming scheme. Now, it sounds great, doesn't it? Sustainable. Um, but, you know, what the scheme does is it forces farmers in order to get subsidies, which we don't get from the EU anymore. In order for them to get their subsidies, they need to turn over 20 percent of their land to growing trees, um and um and um you know helping wildlife that's 20 percent now the welsh government's own figures estimate that five and a half thousand jobs will be lost as a result of this scheme and that um around 200 million will be lost from farming in wales so a big thing the big question for me is who is this sustainable for well, people have been farming on the Welsh hills for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Um, it's some of the most productive agricultural land in the world. So it seems to me that uh, Welsh farms have been sustainable without need for any particular government intervention. In fact, uh, you know, government intervention in these things invariably causes more problems than it solves. What's more, I mean... I'm guessing here, but I would imagine that something like the 80% of the total land area of Wales is given over to farming. Much of it upland, uh, you know, much of it over 500 or 1,000 feet, uh, which is used for grazing sheep and which doesn't necessarily take too well to so-called rewilding, uh, 
you know, trees struggle to grow, etc. You know, that's why people raise sheep on this land, because sheep are the most suitable uh, natural way of making the land productive and it can't really be used for much else. So it seems like this is uh, all rather dunderheaded, James. Is there any sign of the government backing down? Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, you know, in the last two weeks, we've seen Mark Drayford, who's the first minister for Wales. He's a Welsh Labour politician. Um, he angered farmers. It's one of the reasons why I think so many people showed up today, because he basically said, well, look, he stood up in the Senate and he said to the farmers um, that this is all your fault for voting for Brexit. Now, the first thing to say is there's no evidence that farmers on mass voted for Brexit because, um, you know, the farming unions all vote all, all sided on remain. Um, but the, the thing is, what he's actually saying to them is the reason I've got the powers now to be able to do this to you is because you voted for Brexit. It doesn't make any sense at all. So it's made farmers, farmers very, very angry. Um, the other thing we saw yesterday was Alan Davies, who's a member of the Senate, again from the Labour Party. Um, he called farmers and all of their supporters a bunch of cranks. So it doesn't look good in terms of the Welsh government listening. And the other thing to, to, to report as well, talking to farmers this morning, is there are ongoing meetings with the government. But apparently the government keep on changing the goalposts. Um, there were 12... Um, farming representatives that were supposed to attend the meetings earlier this week and right at the last minute the Welsh government said no only five can come in so you know the, the signs are that the politicians aren't listening at the moment all the opposition politicians right here today we heard from Andrew R.T. Davis who's the leader of the Conservatives he's a farmer himself um, he was very very supportive of the farmers um, we interviewed for TNT um, the shadow finance minister, uh, Peter Fox, and that, that interview will be going out in the next day. Again, he's a livestock farmer in Wales. So it does seem that we've got this divide, whereas a lot of the Conservatives are actually from that farming community in Wales, whereas the Labour politicians are all these new woke, you know, climate supporting types, um, which we don't need at the moment. Yes, the uh, metropolitan types, as it were, who... Uh, understand very little of the way the land works. Have they still got that ludicrous 20 mile an hour speed limit in Wales? They have, yes. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting for anybody who follows politics in Wales because we've had a Welsh parliament here as part of the devolution settlement in the UK for just over 20 years now. And Labour have been in power for that whole period, mainly because of the, you know, the, um, the, the minor strikes back in the 80s. And the fact that Margaret Thatcher came down on them so hard, it means that people here in Wales, you know, that they they wouldn't dare vote for the Conservatives. It's a dirty name, um, Conservative here in Wales. Um, so, so yeah, the politics is interesting in Wales. And after the twenty mile an hour debacle, it's looking like Labour might be in trouble for the first time it, over that period, the last twenty four years, and now. They've got a death here with the farmers. The farmers, they've really insulted the farming community. And that is the backbone of most of Wales. Obviously, the southeast of Wales, um, we've got Newport, Cardiff. But the rest of Wales, they are rural communities. And um, the yes. Welsh Labour government yes. haven't done themselves any favours in, in insulting them. Yes, uh, Wales traditionally a mixture of heavy industry, particularly in South Wales, which used to be the 
chief iron and steel producing as well as coal of course part of the united kingdom but apart from that a very very largely rural economy uh, where are the welsh nationalists on this Clyde Cymru, um you know never traditionally as strong as the scottish nationalists but nevertheless they claim to be in touch with grassroots activism yeah, I think they are part of the woke brigade here in Wales. They're very, very much oh, all dear. about the climate. Um, uh, Gareth Wynne Jones, who spoke today, he's a, a farmer here in Wales. He's he's a YouTuber as well. He's got over two million subscribers. He spoke today. He's actually had death threats um, in the last week. The police were called out. I think they've got the culprit now. But this is the kind of climate we've got here in Wales. Um, we've got, you know, they're, they're really... Um, militant um you know these climate activists and like i said farmers are getting death threats for for the for the action they're taking completely and utterly insane and you know you're right the the the, the climate thing i mean i've got an old chum i occasionally spar with on facebook who uh you know it's completely brainwashed into believing that we are rushing headlong into some kind of uh you know emergency crisis that's gonna you know upend society the weather is awful today here on the south coast of england the weather is awful where you are in wales it is cold it is wet it is exactly the kind of weather that we have always experienced in february in this country uh going back to my childhood no different at all uh, you know, we've got to undo an awful lot of the damage that's been done by this brainwashing. Um, finally, James, anything you want to add before we wrap up this section? Yeah, sure. So um, we, like I said, we had a lot of speakers today. There were an awful lot of cheers for the positive messages coming out, but there was a lot of booing as well. Um, and actually that came um, during, um, it was a, a representative for the National Farming Union and she talked about, you know, the fact that farmers wanted to support net zero and climate. That was the wrong thing to say. We right, got the biggest boo right. today from that. Um, really, really unsettling, I think, for the speaker there. We also got a lot of big boos wow. from Mark Drakeford as well. Um, interesting to say, just finally, Basil, that, you know, we had um, politicians from Conservatives here, from Plaid Cymru, not one politician from the governing Labour Party here in Wales. Um, very, very sad to see that. Yes, very disappointing indeed. In fact, it's this lack of accountability, this sort of failure to um, front up the policies that you're claiming to support. It's one of the most disappointing aspects of our democracy. You often can't get spokesmen to turn up on television or radio uh, and defend the policies they're foisting on the rest of us. I know that from personal experience here at TNT, where I've been endlessly trying to get spokesmen from various organizations to come and appear and defend their organization's actions particularly the church of england at the moment but they singularly fail to put anybody up james freeman joining us from senate Kimru, the welsh parliament there in cardiff thank you very much indeed for joining us this afternoon on the patrick hennigson show thank you bezel thank you there he goes. That's James Freeman in a typically wet Wales in the beginning of February. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, I'll be joined by investigative journalist Freddie Ponton, all the way from the south of France. 
and we'll be looking at Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO chief, and his crimes against peace. Don't go away. We'll be right back. TNT's David Curtin. The noise about this is not out of any genuine concern for Navalny himself or his family, but this has been weaponized in order to bash Putin. And it seems that the media, the mainstream media, and the politicians in the West, the powers that be, have got what I would call Putin derangement syndrome, which follows on after Brexit derangement syndrome and Trump derangement syndrome. Something is happening in the world that they don't like, they can't control, they've lost control of the narrative, they've lost control of what they want to happen. And what they want to do by this, by bashing Putin in the mainstream media, is to prolong this terrible war in Ukraine. David Curtin on today's News Talk. TNT. TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to TNTradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. And welcome back to the Patrick Hennison Show today, Wednesday, the 28th of February, 2024. I am Basil Valentine in for Patrick, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined, as we always are on a Wednesday, by investigative journalist Freddie Ponton, all the way from the south of France. Welcome to the programme, Freddie. Well, it's good to be with you, Basil. Thanks, fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Now, this morning... Uh, Ursula von der Leyen addressed the European Parliament. So did uh, the widow of Alexei Navalny. Uh, but uh, von der Leyen came out with some extraordinary remarks saying that uh, the threat of war may not be immediate, but it is not ruled out. Uh, this, of course, after your president, Emmanuel Macron, earlier in the week said... Uh, that he was ready to put French troops uh, into Ukraine, um, directly confronting Russian troops, thereby bringing two nuclear-armed powers into direct confrontation. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, war should be ruled out. War between any kind of European army or NATO. I'm not sure who von der Leyen speaks for. Uh, she certainly speaks for herself. She has, uh, you know aggrandized her position into some sort of empress of Europe. 
attracting the criticism of Joseph Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief at the weekend, who was uh, pushed back against her wrapping herself in the Israeli flag. But um, <laughs> it seems she's in lockstep with Stoltenberg about this. They're sort of just holding back from actually saying that they want World War Three, but getting as close as they possibly can, Freddie. Yes, it's just bloody appalling. I mean, this is really, you know, the, the continuity of Monday's meeting, as you just uh, uh, mentioned in, in Paris, with Macron starting to feel important, you know, when he's clearly not. But the dichotomy of this language and uh, the verbiage these people are using is unbelievable. You know, on one side, they'll tell you that there is no consensus amongst the European states with regards to how to deal with Russia, despite the fact that they obviously cannot accept the defeat of Ukraine and uh, trying basically to gather the troops uh, in order to... Uh, get more money from the European taxpayers and on the other side trying to see whether you know they can escalate this war because they've lost on so many fronts and Europe is on the verge of collapsing and people are now everywhere talking about you know starting to entertain the idea of getting out of of Europe something we have entertained in France for a very long time uh, the idea of Frexit and the idea of getting out of NATO and WHO and all these uh, supranational organizations which have only brought uh, disasters and are make us poorer by the day. So I think she's just in that particular continuity. I believe that she definitely would enjoy to have Jens Stoltenberg, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, and she would have loved to get his job, you know, and will probably already be at war with uh, with Russia. So the, the psychopath of Europe so seems to have found themselves in each other's in the comfort of of each other is trying to plot more war, more death uh, in Ukraine. And that's just simply sad. Yes, earlier this week, Zelensky came out with a figure of 31,000 dead uh, Ukrainians. But we've seen other estimates, 10 times that number. Um, and, you know, from the press ganging, the conscription of women and older people into the Ukrainian army and the number apparently missing in action, uh, I think the real figure is much higher than 31,000, isn't it, Freddie? Well, I mean, the estimates from uh, various, really various military experts, you know, from the most, you know, pro U pro-Ukrainians or even pro-Russian, it doesn't matter. Anyone that knows what it's talking about will understand that we are talking in the vicinity of in between 300,000 and half a million people, uh, at yeah. least 300,000 dead and the rest probably injured or unable to resume combat, you know. So this is a disaster. I mean, and it's very easy to explain, you know. You can see how difficult it is for uh, Ukraine to... Uh, to gather the troop and to get actually new recruits, you know, to, to be sent out to the grinder, uh, the meat grinder there. <laughs> uh, they're, they're struggling to get people that wants to, you know, uh, be part of that because simply yeah, they have to go now to different generations and get older people to get involved, uh, people that with handicap or whatever. They'll take anyone, women, as you just said, you know, it doesn't matter. It seems that they're okay to send their people to their, you know, uh, ultimate death. Uh, without thinking it twice, simply because this is what NATO and the United States and the UK wants. And uh, and as long as they keep on paying and uh, 
taxing the, the, the European and the, the Western taxpayers, you know, to sponsor this war effort. It's all good. It's uh, apparently uh, acceptable, which is unbelievable. It's, it's just unconceivable. <laughs> to the most dangerous escalation I heard of this week was uh, Stoltenberg. Uh, and I'm not sure quite who or what gives him the authority or the right to say this. But he said that it will be up to each ally to decide whether the F-16 fighter jets uh, will be used to strike legitimate Russian targets outside Ukraine. In other words, he's saying uh, Ukraine can strike targets deep inside Russian territory itself. And he added that he believed that the death of the opposition politician Alexei Navalny and indeed the Russian gains on the battlefront in recent months should help focus the attention of NATO on its and its allies on the urgent need to support Ukraine. What Navalny's got to do with it, I've absolutely no idea whatsoever. I mean, he's an individual who died, uh, his death being investigated. Um, it should not be used as a pretext for any kind of escalation. Um, but the use of F-16s to strike targets inside Russia does represent a significant step towards a wider conflict, doesn't it, Brittany? Yes, absolutely. I mean, th th these are the very same people that were actually advocating for, you know, no long range missile, no troop on the ground, no planes. You know, if you go back to the early part of the war, even in the year two, uh, they, they were still very cautious about making any move uh, of, of this kind. But it, it looks like it's open bar now and everybody is kind of entitled to, to come up with uh, the most eccentric ideas about this conflict and how to resolve it. And, and peace is definitely not one of the solutions that they are uh, entertaining. Now, as you said, Navalny's story is just you know thrown out there like a wild card, but uh, you know anybody that knows and any journalists uh, uh, that deserve this title or this uh, this description would know Navalny is, and you're dealing with a, a CIA asset. There's no absolutely no other way to describe him as someone that has been on the extreme right front. He's not the main opponent of. Putin, and he's definitely not the nice guy the uh, the Western world is trying to portray. Uh, uh, this is not someone that was uh, politically a danger for Putin. He never was. as uh, an oligarch like many others, and someone that was used and seen as a potential asset to create the mayhem and to basically unbalance the government of Putin. But uh, apart from that, if you will, you know, uh, at the end of the day, this is a matter that concerns Russia and only Russia. This has nothing to do with anybody else. It's a Russian affairs, Russian business, and let them deal with each other. So why on earth are we getting involved? It's, you know, your guess is as good as mine, Basil. But uh, yes, I mean, it's very, very uh, 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 threatening. And I think France is really awakening now, especially after Monday and this uh, conference in Paris with 25 head of states and uh, various Ministry of Foreign Affairs, intelligence, I mean, you name it, anyone that has uh, basically a teeth 
uh, in this game was in Paris, you know, looking and discussing as uh, the way forward uh, with this war. And Macron's speech was really, really bizarre because uh, he's basically entertaining any kind of scenarios, including boots on the ground from the French army, something that has never been discussed with the parliament, something that has never been discussed with the French citizenry. So we are talking about someone that is acting like a, a kind of king uh, uh, and is not consulting his parliament and is uh, uh, making threats to nations like Russia. Uh, this is not a, a small little uh, country with no air force that can barely defend itself. This is a serious nation that has proven, you know, its value and quality in combat over and over. This was an ally, you know, uh, that's helped France to be liberated from uh, Nazi Germany. And today, this nobody, Macron, is coming and announcing, you know, publicly that he's uh, even... You know, entertaining the idea of boots on the ground, French boots on the ground in, in Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Ukraine is not a member of the European Union. It is not the role of President uh, of France to endanger its population just for a global agenda. That's something that he's going to have to answer. And I think already we're saying some of the French people are reacting uh, to what Macron has said on Monday. And we're also now starting to see also actions uh, taken uh, on a civilian basis against Jens Stoltenberg uh, for being a, a pretty much a, a weapon of choice to promote this war in Ukraine. And, uh, and we'll talk about that. But this is very important to see how Jens Stoltenberg is uh, definitely uh, considered by many in France as someone uh, responsible for crimes uh, against peace. Uh, some have speculated because there was a lot of pushback around Europe and NATO against Macron's suggestion that, uh, in fact, what Macron was trying to do was signal to the Ukrainians that they're not going to get troops and that they therefore better sue for peace. Uh, that, you know, floating the idea of uh, French troops in Ukraine um, was widely condemned, including by even the United Kingdom said that no, we have no plans to do so, etc., uh, etc. Et so uh, if the Ukrainians, particularly the military high command, had been hoping that they were going to get reinforcements from Western Europe and possibly even the Americans, uh, they can no longer labor under that delusion. Therefore, they should be coming to the conclusion that the war is unwinnable from their point of view, and therefore they should be suing for peace at the first available opportunity. And, and this is part of the mandate, you know, all the supranational organization, United Nations Security Council, United Nations Charters, NATO Charters, it's never been about attacking or creating more war. It's actually uh, the contrary. And this is really about finding ways to de-escalate conflicts and tensions between nations. This is something we've learned after the, uh, uh, the post-Cold War. It was very important to have mechanism in place that prevents basically more war. So uh, it's important to, to, to reframe what Macron is saying uh, 
within the context of international law, because we are all subjected as nations and as leaders uh, to uh, to international law. And what he's saying is goes as you know, France is a member uh, of uh, the United Nations uh, Security Council, a permanent member. So we have extra duty as far as making sure that everything we say and we do uh, remains in line with the Charter of the United Nations and uh, also the Charter of NATO, since we are a member. And in this particular instance, everything that Macron said is completely uh, uh, the opposite of what these charters are, uh, are recurring. So we... I think it's really important now to start to hold people responsible. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more of that across the European Union. People are starting to ask, you know, for accountability because we have so many of these Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General, President of Nation, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you name it. They're all coming out and making some of these weird claim or statements, but they never hold accountable. And that is just simply not acceptable. And I, I'm glad we, we're seeing now some, some resistance to that. Yes, uh, and uh, you don't hear a single dicky bird from Stoltenberg about the massacre in Gaza. Simple as that. He has nothing whatsoever to say. Uh, lots of pontificating about uh, illegal invasions in Eastern Europe, but... Uh, total silence when it comes to the genocide. On the other hand, we have had some pushback uh, from Joseph Borrell when speaking to the Spanish paper of record El Pais last weekend. Uh, he mm -hmm. started talking about the trip by von der Leyen uh, to kiss the ring and bend the knee in front of mass murderer Netanyahu back in October. That trip by von der Leyen with such an absolutely pro-Israeli stance, without representing anyone but herself in a matter of international politics, has had a high geopolitical cost for Europe, he said. That's quite an unusually strong statement for somebody who is supposed to take exactly the same position as von der Leyen on every issue, isn't it? Well, it, it represents basically the overall feelings that is into the, you know, that is available, that is basically uh, uh, inside the European Commission, if you will. I mean, uh, it, it's an ideal to believe that von der Leyen and her attitude is something that is extremely popular in the European Commission. It is not. It is not at all. And a right. lot of people are extremely exasperated by, by her attitude. And as you just said, the, the, very, uh, the very effort to take upon herself to make declarations, to participate in dialogues or, or activities that clearly uh, show a personal uh, incline towards Israel and support of Israel, which is absolutely way outside of the mandate. And it's not the first time that the European Council uh, and parliaments and other uh, executive within the European commissions has basically said that she's acting outside of a mandate, way above what is allowed by a mandate to do. So uh, it's, it's time. I mean, I think at this moment in time, she knows she's on her way out, but she seems to be answering, and uh, she seems to have this very tight link with uh, the Israeli governments and the regimes there, 
and she has no problem taking a stance, even though this is, there is no consensus, nor there is an agreement uh, as far as where the EU, which is not a state, yet again, EU cannot talk on behalf of being a state because it's not a state, which means that all the member states needs to be in agreement. There must be a consensus where eventually a, a general declaration can make be made as far as the foreign policies and as fine as the, uh, uh, the foreign affairs message towards the situation in, in Israel and Gaza. But she has no absolutely no right. And actually, as a leader, she should be on the on the defensive rather than to be on the offensive, you know, just to to have that kind of diplomatic uh, uh, attitude towards the problem or the conflict. But she's very engaged. She's like her. <laughs> You know, like someone that is a, an activist rather than just a, a, a president of a European Commission. It's a disaster. No, it is. She seems to see herself as some sort of empress of Europe or something, you know. Um, one of the few good things to have come out of Brexit, Freddie, is that she's nothing to do with me and she doesn't speak for me in any way, shape or form. And it must be, frankly, embarrassing to be a citizen of a European country and see that woman parading around talking such total garbage and cozying up to some of the worst people on earth who should, frankly, be in prison. On the other hand, Borrell, speaking to uh, the Spanish daily El Diario at the weekend, said, I reclaim my right to criticise the decisions of the Israeli government without being considered an anti-Semite. The two things have nothing to do with each other, he said. Oh, no, no, you know, this is uh, heretical, isn't it, from someone as senior it's as Borrell? Heresy. Uh, look, Borrell has been very clear. I mean, I, I, you got to give it to him. I've never been, uh, you know, always a supporter of Borrell, but on the, uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, 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 conflict uh, he's been very clear I think for him it's, uh, it's quite clear where he stands but uh, I, I think that he should not be intimidated about you know uh, his ability uh, uh, to, to speak out when he sees wrong has been done and more importantly criticizing Israel uh, is you know criticizing a state is not against the law. Last time I checked, nothing prohibits you from speaking about a state. You know, if something goes wrong or something you don't like about it, we are not subjected to the Israeli law. We are subjected to the international law in terms of foreign affairs and you know in politics and diplomacy. And as citizens, we can do pretty much whatever we want and say whatever we want. There's no business whatsoever to tell us if we cannot criticize Israel or not. If Israel is committing a genocide, or if I or you believe they are committing a genocide, you have the right to say, this is what you believe, based on your own uh, assertion, based on what you were able to find out, or simple observation. So Boel is basically uh, exercising his right, his right to have an opinion and the right to be heard. That's nothing more than that. There's nothing illegal about it, and good on him for doing so. Morel went on to say the UN has had to suspend its aid, and Israel is using famine as a weapon of war, which runs contrary to international law. He's absolutely right on that. It remains to be seen whether there are any consequences. 
And he also added that the international community needs to impose a two-state solution if Israel is unwilling. I look forward to seeing what that looks like on the ground. Uh, I'm not quite, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. Does that mean uh, he's proposing UN or NATO troops go into the West Bank and start dismantling all the settlements there? Um, you know, as is always with these things, people don't really think through the detail. It's a sort of admirable um, intention. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, we've got the two cases at the ICJ coming to a head. The one uh, two years in the making, um, examining the occupation, plus, of course, the uh, recent South African action to stop the genocide. Israelis are due to present their case as to what they've done in the last month to stop uh, killing people as they were ordered to do. Well, the latest estimates are that they've killed about three and a half thousand uh, in the last, since they were told to stop killing people. So they've sort of slightly slowed the kill rate, very slightly. But, but mind you, we don't know how many people are dying of starvation in northern Gaza. Uh, I've read an absolutely harrowing story uh, just this morning about children fleeing south because they have been eating uh, bread made from animal feed which is killing some of them i mean the situation uh, is just absolutely off the charts um we would eat bird and donkey food just anything said seraj shahada aged eight when we were in Gaza City, we used to eat nothing. We would eat every two days. I mean, uh, the ICJ, is, is it going to do anything about all this, do you think? Uh, or are we just going to uh, get well, more fine words and inaction, Freddie? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, this, this, this is part of the provisional measures which were granted to South Africa in their quest and their, their case against... Um, uh, Israel, you know, which they believe to be committing genocide in uh, in the Gaza Strip. So these are part of the uh, the file, the docket, if you will. And I'm quite confident that the information which was released by Israel uh, after a month uh, following the, uh, the the court orders ruling, uh, this information has been definitely. Uh, made available to, to the South African defense. Now, it's interesting to see how they're going to, you know, what kind of information uh, Israel has put on this particular filing, you know, to explain the efforts and how they've complied with these provisional uh, orders, especially when uh, the famine now is, you know, on every single article you can read about Gaza, especially when you obviously had a, hundreds of videos saying clearly that the Israeli government is allowing uh, the supporter of Smotrich and others to be at the Rafa borders to impede basically uh, uh, the entrance uh, and the entry of aid into, into the Gaza Strip at the Rafa borders. And then uh, to add on top of that, you have Israel building a massive uh, logistical hub, uh, hub just on the on the outskirts of uh, of the Gaza Strip in the southern parts, uh, really telling us basically that they are preparing themselves to welcome uh, the uh, whatever's left of the Gaza populations. You know, if they don't all die of starvation. So I don't know what this report is about. I've looked for it, but it's not been publicly released, of course, uh, because there's a course of action 
action, a court of justice, as, as you know. So that's will remain in between uh, uh, the both uh, uh, parties in disputes to to assess and for the court to uh, uh, to manifest itself. But uh, what they can possibly do is very limited because their mandate is, uh, as I say, it's about to prevent for genocide. Uh, to be uh, to be committed, all they can say is provide a recommendations according uh, to uh, you know the provisional orders. Say that so Israel was in breach of these provisional orders. They have not complied with the order, and therefore recommended the United Nations Security Council to apply basically uh, and to enforce uh, the uh, provisional order. So it's really about now. The next step is about enforcement, because if you breach of what the court has required or the court's ruling, then the court has the right to ask the United Nations Security Council, which has the possibility to enforce uh, these orders, to, uh, to take a, a decision in a form of a resolution uh, to enforce the, the orders. So that's the next step. How long it would take, I am not in a position to tell you that today, Basel. Well, let's hope that the United States don't try and veto that as well. I believe if they do things, go back to the General Assembly. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, I'll be joined by Tagred al-Marwed of the Palestinian Refugee Project to find out about just how desperate the situation is on the ground in Gaza. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The weather across the United States has turned exactly opposite what I thought it would turn. It's become very, very warm. Now, the reason this is happening is because the water around Australia has warmed dramatically and unpredictably warmed dramatically. And this creates a different phase of the Madden-Julian oscillation than what I anticipated happening before the winter. You see, the computer models, and we have to use them to look at sea surface temperatures, weren't predicting anything like this. This sudden warming happened in January, but not be from man-made sources. It had to be something natural going on that we don't know about. In any case, people are blaming climate change. I have no problem with that. The climate is changing. It's been changing. It will always change. But when people start saying you are a denier, all they're doing is using ad hominem attacks to try to equate you with the miserable people that denied what happened in the Holocaust. And that should raise red flags as to what these people are all about. Climate change is real. It is 99.9% .9 natural, and the impact of man has very little to do with it. And there is no denying that. This is T. TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Hi, I'm Ryan Blaney, a third generation race car driver. And we dedicate a lot of our time to going as fast as possible. But when my grandpa was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was a very unexpected bump in the road for us. It's important to notice if older family members are acting differently, experiencing problems with their memory, or having trouble with routine tasks. Early detection of Alzheimer's can give your family time to explore support services, make a plan for the future, and access available treatments. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. I want to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. I need to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. Why can't I eat, eat, eat apples and bananas? Support the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks to help provide meals to those in need. Join us at feedingamerica.org. 
Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the programme with me, Basil Valentine, in for Patrick Henningsen today, Tuesday, Wednesday, the 28th of February, usually the last day of month, but of course it's a leap year, so we've got a 29th tomorrow. Uh, anyway, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Tagrid al Wed now from the Palestinian Refugee Project based here in the UK, as well as by Freddie Ponton, investigative journalist who keeps right up to date with matters in the Middle East. Tagrid, welcome to the programme. It's great that you can join us. Thank you for having me over tonight. Thank you. Uh, as you, we, Freddie and I were just discussing, the Israelis are supposed to present information to the International Court of Justice uh, in the very near future, uh, explaining exactly how and why they have been uh, in accordance with the ICJ rulings, that they should stop harming Palestinians. Uh, on the contrary, three and a half thousand have died. And uh, I've just been reading about a harrowing story of three young boys who ran away in secret to take refuge with their aunt in Deir al-Bala in central Gaza because there was nothing to eat in Gaza City. Uh, I believe the worst of the uh, created famine, the starvation crisis, is yeah. in Gaza City. Uh, but uh, obviously there's severe force, severe food shortages throughout the Gaza Strip. Yeah. And regardless yeah. of any hostage deal or anything else, it seems Netanyahu is determined to start up the killing machine uh, in full yeah. speed again uh, at the first available opportunity. Yes. Uh, well, I just wanted to tell you in the last uh, four days, uh, a few days, uh, four children, Palestinian, uh, they died of uh, malnutrition and uh, dehydration. Palestinian children. So, um, what I can uh, just to let the people what is really happening. Uh, and what I would like to, to say something here that uh, I don't understand why people still say in ICG this, that, and the other, and it's an occupation. Why they give her even the right to be presented as a state? It is an occupier where I and my father were born in the diaspora 75 years ago uh, to Lebanon because some people took over our places. I should be in north of Palestine. I should go back home. So when you're saying about uh, they've been taken to court as if they are legitimate and they are not. And when you are in this position, you can do this atrocity as they are doing, killing people left, right and center and making any excuse for it. No, absolutely. I mean, there is the parallel case at the ICJ, which is uh, looking at the occupation of the West Bank. Um, I think yeah. you're talking about the entire Zionist project, uh, yes. which is yes. increasingly coming under scrutiny, shall we say. Uh, yes. In the next hour, I'm going to be joined by Chris Williamson, the former uh, Labour MP, yes, yes. Uh, who is one of a growing number of people uh, now questioning uh, the whole future of Israel. Uh, basically, that what we need is a process of de-Zionization for the whole of the region, because a completely sick, homicidal 
society has been allowed to take root in historic Palestine, uh, which yes. seems to know only murder, theft, and then lying to cover up its crimes, Tagrid. And, and nowadays, even there's a proof, and other than the old, you know, images, uh, videos uh, during the beginning of the genocides, it's not one genocide, it's, it's ongoing genocides. There's live videos and they still are lying. Like I've never seen uh, people like this ever. And there's another information. I keep people, I keep trying my best to uh, make people think of it. It's not October. It's even the killing of the Palestinian didn't start even on the during the Nakba. It started 1936 or 37, I remember, on the hand of the Zionists. Uh, the, the extremist, which we don't dare say Jewish terrorists or be uh, end up criticized or uh, called anti-Semite, but they are allowed to call me as a Muslim and ISIS or Taliban, etc. So we need to remember when in, 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 in Haifa and Yafa they start the killing, it's non-stop. So it's ongoing genocide. So why people just making it narrowing it to now to Gaza? What about the old people in the old days? Don't they have family? grieved don't they have houses they've lost we've reached we've beyond a hundred and thirty thousands martyrs palestinians on the hand of them so why now they are counting 30 no we're not only 30 we're more than 130 thousand so that is one of the problems i want people not only now look at what is happening now look before because when i moved to the uk i've never thought that somebody will come say i've never thought there's a palestinian refugee exist in Lebanon. So that's a laughter. I've told them I, I am from Safuri, the village where Mary was born. I'm a woman. I keep resisting and standing. I keep fighting. Even now, I've been stopped by some group Zionists because we Palestinian or pro-Palestine are a target of Zionism. They are a big attack on me, trying to stop me from being vocal and speaking, and nothing will stop me. All only is this Shahada. That's how I was brought up. So no one will stop me. Indeed, it's very sad, but you know, one of the chief weapons used by Zionists is, of course, simply to deplatform Palestinians, to not allow them their voice, not allow yeah. them to tell their story. Israel likes yes. to operate in the dark and perpetuate yes. its own myths about creating some sort of wonderful liberal democracy in an area that was previously inhabited only by primitive Arabs and other such racist lies. Uh, Freddie, yeah. do you have a question for Tangred? Yes, uh, of course. Uh, it's great to be on the show with, uh, with you, Tangred, and uh, I really admire your courage. And, uh, uh, you know, a fight is, is something people have fought, you know, for a couple of years and then eventually given up. But, you know, Palestinians have been fighting, as you say, even before the Nakba. So this is something that has been allowed to happen for way too long. So, and, and, and I really commend your, your courage and your bravery because this is a, a fight which will change ultimately, uh, not only 
the region, but it also would change the way people perceive our institutions in the West, you know, uh, the United Nations Security Council and all these uh, so-called uh, uh, buffer, which are normally there to prevent such crimes to be committed, which are clearly fell in their mandate. So uh, it's very important. And I, when I really see the uh, uh, the desire, which has been always been part of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's plan, basically to cancel the debate on the right of return the refugee debate, which uh, UNRWA, the United Nations agencies, has always kind of uh, uh, brought forward and uh, never gave up on bringing and making sure that refugees, whether in Jordan, Lebanon and other countries, have this right. Because uh, according to international law, you have the right to return. After the, the combat or the fight is, is done, you have absolutely 100%. Yes. It's unequivocal the right to return and you need to get compensation you have the right to get yeah, your land I keep <laughs> <laughs> an apology from the British government they need to write an apology and an apology of course so there's no doubt about that it's very clear in the text of law we don't need even to debate it it's it's out there and there's many resolutions already yeah. at the United Nations which have clearly outlined uh, this right so it's, it's not in, in debate but what perhaps I have a questions for you as you know as a, a, a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon, uh, how do you consider, can you tell us a little bit more about how you perceive UNRWA, you know, because we always hear about how Israel perceives UNRWA, which we couldn't care less, but what we care about is how Palestinian people see UNRWA. What, the good and the bad, it doesn't matter. What matters yeah, yeah, is, a, is your experience, yeah. your opinion yes. that matters. Yeah. Well, who established the UNRWA? Let's say after the uh, legal um, um, uh, Nation of League, after the National League, League who, of who Nations, established yes. UNRWA? Um, the League yeah, of Nations. Yeah, the United Nations, yeah. Ah, the United Nations. Who established it? The United Nations. The same the group American. of countries who are uh, colonizing our countries now. So right. I, when I was young, all what I consider is a cover-up for the crimes they commit now, it takes years and centuries before it's sold. So for me, UNRWA, it's a lie. It's it's just a project. Maybe now they are a little bit start to change as like the, the establishment of Taliban, it was to be against something, then it was fired back on the American. The same maybe United Nations change and become really truly pro-Palestine. So for me, the United Nations, it was nothing other than giving me food, making me queuing with my mom to get food? Why? I should be back home. There shouldn't be United Nations not giving me my right. No medicine. And right now, after the Zionists uh, defunding, there's nothing there left. When I was in Lebanon, I was there uh, a few weeks ago. Some young men, some families, they've been two months, uh, no wages. How do you think they're going to have medicine, have uh, food, and the honor already, already started years and years ago, cutting their services, and it was shrinking before now, so they don't make it an excuse as it's just something happened now, after a couple of guys working there, member of Hamas or something, which again, that's another lie. So for me, I am one of the Palestinians who consider if it's really genuine United Nations, should, they should work harder and give priority. And uh, it shouldn't be controlled by the same groups who caused my problems originally in the Middle East, not only my Palestinian one.
Oh, thank you for no, that. that. It's a great explanations. And you're making some very interesting points here as well. Is that, you know, the, the focus has always been on taking care of the refugee rather than to actually taking care of bringing them back to their homeland, you know, which was the yeah. priority. So it's a very good point you're making. Perhaps what I could contribute to in order to to maybe give you a, a, a view uh, of how I look at the United Nations. Uh, I've known them for a very long time and I work alongside the United Nations, not as a UN employee, but alongside them as a contractor. So I've had the chance to know. What, what I can tell you is that there is two families in the United Nations. There is the politic of the United Nations and the people on the ground. And that's two different things. So it's yes. difficult to yes. talk about the United Nations just on one side. Political yes. decisions, not making a lot of sense, but certainly some people are extremely committed to the Palestinian cause within the United Nations. And for that, for those Ready? that fight on the ground. We're going to have to hold it there. We'll be right back to continue this conversation after the news at the top of the hour. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Uh -huh.